I always thought that by the time that I grew up and became a Dharma teacher, that I'd have it all together. <laughs> that somehow, magically, I'd no longer feel fear, anxiety, um, and a vulnerability. <coughs> but what I've come to find out is that what's being called upon me is to be able to embrace these same feelings of fear and anxiety and vulnerability, and in doing so with a caring and loving heart. I wanted to acknowledge this fear because what I found in my practice and in my life that honesty is a great friend, that it goes a long way to opening up the space of acceptance. And there was another reason I wanted to mention it too, and that is just to remind us that when we're sitting here talking about the Dharma, it's not as if we're talking about something that one day when we become so pure that we'll, have, we'll understand it, but the Dharma is actually a living truth that is present and available here now. we can be a witness to this unfolding. It just doesn't always unfold in the way that we thought it would. (laughs) As Sharon mentioned last night, metta is the first of the four Brahma-viharas. The Pali word Brahma is often translated as heavenly or divine and vihara as abode or home. Our heavenly home or divine abode. The other three Brahma viharas are karuna or compassion, mudita, which is appreciative or sympathetic joy, and upeka or equanimity. These are all qualities of the heart and mind that are present when we are at home and at ease with life. We can cultivate these qualities through deliberate cultivation in meditation as we're doing here during this week. We can also cultivate them as a way of life and a a way of living in daily life. They serve to be a foundation for living in a way that brings greater harmony and peacefulness which gives rise to a state of mind where insight can arise, leading to liberation. Although all of the Brahma-viharas can be practiced separately, they are all intrinsically linked. The practice of the Brahma-viharas is a means to understanding the true nature of our hearts and is a natural expression of this. So karuna, or compassion, is the second Brahma-vihara. Compassion is classically described as the quivering or trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It It happens when we come in contact with suffering and are able to connect and respond without being overwhelmed by it. 
It has the quality of fearlessness. It is where we are willing and able to act with a courageous heart that steps outside of the boundaries of separate self. Compassion may pull us into action when we come in contact with that which is unwholesome, harmful, or damaging to others. We become motivated by the desire to alleviate suffering rather than pulling away, denying, or retreating from painful states or situations. Through the practice of metta, we begin to open to all beings through the friendly heart. In compassion practice, we begin to open to their suffering. The metta lays the foundation to work for compassion to come about. When we feel at home in life, a sense of ease, being able to love and be loved, we have a base from which to open to suffering. The Buddha often gave metta practice to people who experienced a lot of fear, and as we become less fearful, we have the courage to open to new depths. I had an experience um, in my own practice which really illustrated the foundation that Metta gave to opening to suffering. Um, a few years ago, I went home for Christmas, and at that time, in seeing my father, I really came in contact with his suffering. And it's often the case with our family that their suffering can cut really close to the bone. So one evening I went to bed and I was in my room and I decided to do some compassion practice for him. And as I started doing it, I immediately, almost immediately, became really overwhelmed with grief, despair, sadness, um, feeling as if I was just being swallowed up into the darkness. And then I turned into blaming him for it, <laughs> which was <coughs> quite interesting. Then later that year, I was doing intensive metta practice. And I had spent six weeks doing metta. And then in the instructions for compassion, it's given to first begin with someone whom the suffering is obvious. And my father immediately came to mind. So I began doing compassion for him. And I b it was totally different. I had the strength to open to it. I had the the ability to touch into his suffering as a human being and to hold that with care and love. It, it was quite profound for me, and it got better than that. There was a, um, later that day, I went out into the hallway and there's a message board, much, much like the message board here, and there was a note for me on it. And as I opened it up and read it, it said, your father called, he sends his love. <laughs> My father never calls me, <laughs> especially when I'm in retreat. <laughs> it really strengthened my faith in this practice. <laughs> Nyanaponika Tara, who is a well-known German-born Theravadan monk, says about compassion, The world suffers, but most people have their eyes and ears closed. They do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They do not hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. Their own little grief or joy bars their sight, deafens their ears. Bound by selfishness, their hearts turn stiff and narrow. Being stiff and narrow, how should they be able to strive for any higher goal, to realize that only release from selfish craving will affect their own freedom from suffering? It is compassion, 
that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. This quality of compassion can be a strong motivating force in our lives. It may have been what helped bring us here to this retreat. When we begin to hear the cries of our own heart, the cries of those around us, it motivates us to find a more healthy, fulfilling way of life, wanting to live in the way that does not continually perpetuate the suffering. Before I go any farther, I'd like to to say a little bit more about the word suffering. Um, The truth of suffering is the first of the Four Noble Truths and very central to the Buddhist teachings. In Pali, there's the word dukkha, and it's often translated as suffering, but it has a much broader meaning that many of us may give it in hearing the word suffering. We can readily understand it when we think of mental or physical states that give rise to unpleasant conditions. But the word dukkha extends beyond this. It also means that which is unsubstantial, unsatisfactory, or illusory. We find unsatisfactoriness when we pursue happiness in the fleeting pleasures of life. It is a state of imbalance where due to the ceaseless rising and passing away of our experiences, that we're unable to find true happiness in these experiences. We may be happy one moment, and the next moment conditions change, and we're once again seeking happiness. I remember a time in my early 20s, before I was meditating with any continuity. Um, I had set up a very good life for myself, that I was living in the country, working in the outdoors, which was where I felt most at home. I had several good friends, um, quite a comfortable lifestyle. Uh, I did seasonal work, which allowed me a lot of time for hiking and traveling. One of my travels took me to India, and this was where I began doing more intensive practice. And I was so struck when I began meditating how it just appeared to me that what I had been doing with my life was painting myself into a corner, that I was just going after creating the most pleasant lifestyle I could, and in this way shutting down to much of life. It really struck me how superficial this was, and that there is no way that this was sustainable. At some point in life, even in the best of circumstances, we'll meet sickness, old age, and death. It also kept me from connecting with the world around me where other people might be suffering. And I realized how much energy was going into preserving this lifestyle and at what a cost it was. When we begin to open to suffering, it's huge. I mean, if we just look at our own life and reflect on all of the suffering we have encountered, and we may not have even had our own experiences of starvation, um, 
violence, war, but still I know in my own life there's been moments of extreme agony. And then if we look to the number of people that are on this planet, and some of those people are in really difficult circumstances, and we begin to connect with all of the suffering in their lives. And then if we begin to look back in time for how many people have walked this earth, that it just becomes massive the amount of suffering that there has been. Buddha once described, if you put all the water from the four oceans together, it is still nothing in comparison with all the tears that have been shed from suffering. Ajahn Chah, a well-revered Thai forest monk, once said, there are two kinds of suffering, suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. This is central to our practice, learning to open to that which is painful, unpleasant, cut off, all those places we have separated off from as not being okay. It is not that we want to wallow in these states, but so that we can begin to understand them for what they are and how it is that they create this veil of separation which we identify with. The society we live in today is very geared toward a denial of suffering. We institutionalize the handicapped or the sick, put the aging in homes, and cover over the dying process. As a result, we often get the idea that when suffering does happen, it's as if we've done something wrong or bad, and then we try to hide it. We can also cut off from the pain through denial of pretending that things, painful things aren't happening, sweeping them under the carpet. This can be evident on a larger scale in society by the amount of child abuse, alcoholism, and drug abuse that there is. Often it can be happening in our own backyards and we turn a blind eye. Another way is in how we relate to people, jumping away from places of controversy which at times can be skillful, but at other times it is through an intention to keep things nice, to not make waves in the water. We are not willing to expose ourselves in a way that could stir this water. It's so important to come to a place of understanding that suffering does exist. For many of us, having spent the afternoon working with the difficult person, it probably is not so hard to be in touch with at this moment. We may have come in contact with feelings of fear, rage, despair, grief. It is the work of compassion to be able to open to these states and to accept them. In this acceptance, we begin to taste of freedom. During my first trip to Burma, after a few months of practice, I started to experience a lot of anger, hatred, and ill will. It was quite shocking to me. I'd always thought of myself as being quite a reasonably kind person. And then these states became stronger. 
And I really realized that these states were no different than the states that fuel the wars, the crime, and the violence in the world. It was very humbling to me. It became a very difficult period where all I could do was to hold this with compassion. There became a softening in my heart. It helped me to connect with the universality of suffering. No longer could I condemn those who were violent, abusive, and causing destruction, but I could begin to hold them in my heart, knowing how deep their pain was. If someone angers or outrages us, it can be helpful to open to them in a larger context, taking time to reflect on the conditions in their life, what they must be experiencing to move from such a painful place. If we are to come to be able to uncover the compassionate heart, we must come to understand our anger. The Buddha was uncompromising when he spoke of not holding anger in one's heart. In one of the suttas in the Mashima Nikaya, he says, Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, Bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. That is how you should train, bhikkhus. This is oftentimes not the message we received growing up. <laughs> I recently came across this motto from Colonel Gaston, who first who built the house where IMS is currently located. This is the retreat center in Massachusetts where Sharon, Carol, and myself are presently living. His personal motto was, live every day so that you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> Gaston was described as a rugged individual. <laughs> in our society, we often place a very high value on being individuals. This can have some positive aspects, but when we start to protect our individuality at the expense of others, it becomes very damaging. One thing I'd really like to emphasize in this quote of the Buddha, in his last statement, him saying, this is how you should train, bhikkhus, to remember that this is a practice, a training. I'm not so sure if someone came up to me and began to chop off my limbs that I could hold them with a loving and compassionate heart. But I do sense of the possibility. For inspiration, I look to people like the Dalai Lama, Aung San Suu Kyi, Aung San Suu Kyi was the elected democratic leader in Burma that was never allowed to lead her country, 
but instead she was held under house arrest for six years. During this time, she was not able to communicate with her family, was cut off from outside contact. And during this time, she used it to strengthen her own practice and understanding of the Buddhist teachings. Since she has been released, she is still leading her people without being in power in a nonviolent protest against the government even though many of the people in that country have been tortured, raped, killed, many people have lost family members, she still continues to do this through nonviolence. In her book, Freedom from Fear, she talks about fear has such a paralyzing force. She now has got people going all over Burma, chanting the metta chant that we chant here each night, chanting it to help the Burmese people to be free from their fear. About fear, she says, fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor. Courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let fear dictate one's actions. Courage that could be described as grace under pressure. Her courage and grace under pressure is an inspiration not only to the Burmese people, but to people all over the world, learning that there's other ways to be in the face of anger. Compassion is not something that we only feel towards others, but is equally essential in relation to ourselves. If we look at our meditation practice, there may be many times without, compa- without compassion We only beat our heads against the wall. Times when we are faced with extreme difficulty or painful states, and sometimes we have the energy to open to them, and at other times we may need to have an honest recognition that we are at an edge of what we can open to. The quality of forgiveness is essential to compassion. First, needing to forgive ourselves. If we cannot do this, how can we ever forgive others? Lao Tzu says, Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty, but impractical. But to those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, Compassion. These three treasures are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. Forgiving ourselves, being compassionate towards ourselves. I have found this practice to be so helpful with this. As I keep seeing the force of greed, hatred, and delusion, something quite unexpected happened to me. It wasn't as if I was becoming overwhelmed in the feeling of futility, but I started to gain a greater patience, a greater understanding of the depth of this practice.
when I really begin to feel this suffering, the, the compassion naturally comes. And I wonder how long have I been on this merry-go-round? How much pain and suffering have I endured? I know it is not just me, but that we are all in this predicament. Now, through this practice, I am beginning to understand in a way that brings enough presence and intentionality to my life that I can begin to be free from these destructive habits. When we forgive ourselves or others, we are letting go of the past, releasing held tension, anger, fear, prejudice, torments of our own mind. These torments keep us from meeting each moment in life with a fresh mind. Forgiveness does not leave us powerless should a person continue to harm us. Rather, it empowers us through the spaciousness it brings to respond from a place of wisdom and compassion. It may mean that we have the wisdom to move, remove ourselves from difficult situations. It does not rely upon an external resolution. Sometimes this may be possible and sometimes it just isn't. But we don't have to carry the burden of that grief, anger, rage, despair. Accepting that the resolution is out of contr our control, we can find resolution within. Forgiveness can be very difficult. It takes us to the edge of what we can accept. In this acceptance, we need to allow whatever feelings arise, embracing them. It is not something that can be forced, but we can reconnect again and again with the remembrance of the inherent goodness of all beings. This helps to give us courage. The near enemy of compassion is pity. This is where we are experiencing the suffering through the veil of separation. We may be viewing the person with a slight contempt or seeing them as weak or inferior, thereby feeling sorry for them. But we are not truly connecting with their pain. It still has an element of aversion, which may come out of states of anger, fear, or grief whatever it is in ourselves that we can't face up to. <clears throat> it can often happen at times where we don't actually feel compassion, and it's really just needing to be honest in these moments, and in that honesty lies the possibility for transformation. A few weeks ago I was talking to a friend, and she was in quite a state of suffering. I noticed at first that I did have some feeling of compassion, but as she went on and on, and the story seemed to get more and more complicated, I started to disconnect. And there was this sense of really sort of looking down on this person. And then it was just really interesting. I just noticed that. And that's all I noticed. I didn't go, oh, I should be compassionate, whatever. I just noticed it and then began to reconnect. And out of that reconnection, just, it just opened up the space again, and it wasn't long before we found ourselves in laughter. <clears throat> the far enemy is cruelty, and sometimes cruelty can be very blatant. 
when our, in our rage we say things that we know will hurt another. At other times it may be more subtle, maybe a joke that has some kind of a dig in it. However it manifests, it can be a clear indicator that compassion is not present. It can be a reminder to look and see how it is that we have separated from that which we are being cruel towards. When we are truly living in connection with the world around us, we have no desire to cause harm, but instead live towards a life that is of benefit to all beings. This is not to set up the ideal of what we should be like. Over and over we get caught in our habitual responses to suffering whether it is to deny or suppress or to react to them through anger or hatred, and then can we be compassionate and forgiving towards ourselves. Recently I read of a man named Frankie Parker. He was a multiple murderer. He killed his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, his sister-in-law, kidnapped his ex-wife. He was on death row and was thought to be quite a difficult prisoner and much of a rebel. Um, And then at a certain point he came in contact with the teachings of the Buddha. And even though he was really deep in despair, he heard the teachings and he recognized that even from this place of such intense suffering that there was the possibility of freedom. He took the teachings to heart. He began meditating with diligence. And this transformed the rest of his life. He became a beacon of light on death row. His final statement was, for eight years I have worked on kindling a small light of compassion out of the deep pain I have caused. This little light is now extinguished. I pray that others who have committed heinous crimes may find this small light an inspiration and may spread the flame of compassion to illuminate the entire universe so that all beings may realize the fundamental compassionate nature that resides within us all. During the time of his, just before his death, he faced it with fearlessness. He was able to be an inspiration to his family, to he became a teacher at that time for many, many people. Even as he was taken to death row, he was able to joke with his guards. Both metta and compassion practices can have a very strong healing benefit. I have spent about just about a quarter of my life with chronic fatigue. In the beginning, I fought it hard, denied it, and kept pushing it away, and therefore I was really compounding my suffering. Only recently did I learn to open to this illness with metta and compassion. At times, just curling up in a a little ball and imagining myself bathed in the womb of unconditional love. At other times, I would just be accepting my pain just as it was accepting it not so that it would disappear, be gone, but accepting it with the tenderest of hearts. 
through this acceptance there is healing. Sometimes the illness itself may temporarily disappear, and at other times it is only the struggle that goes. I think maybe I always had um, a romantic idea of what a compassionate heart would feel like. In scratching the surface of compassion, I am finding something quite different. It is oftentimes very humbling. It is not an experience where pride easily arises. Even to be fearless in the face of suffering, if we are connected to the suffering, we know of its depths, and it is nothing we can brag about. It is simply that we are called into action, no bones about it. It is a spontaneous and natural act. Compassionate action in our lives may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For some of us, this may be appropriate and called for, but all of us can begin by facing the demons inside. They may be demons of fear, hatred, anger, frustration, boredom. When they arise, we can embrace them with kindness and care. We may have a strong pull to be socially active in the world, to speak out against injustice, but if we speak out in a reactive state, with anger, rage, and hatred, are we not speaking out with the very same energy that wars are made of? By our willingness to come to terms with these energies in our own minds, we are stopping wars. Compassionate action can be as simple as being able to listen to somebody who's in a painful situation, being fully present for them. Just remember back to a time in your own life when you just needed to talk, to be heard. and There was someone there who could listen to you without giving <coughs> advice. <coughs> someone who is simply willing to bear witness to your pain. Another way is to live the precepts. In this way, we align ourselves to living in a harmonious way with others, a way that respects life. It brings more intentionality to how we live, more awareness to our motivations, and a greater understanding of how our actions affect others. Growing mindfulness begins to protect us, to keep us from performing actions that can cause harm and that we may later regret. Our practice can be seen as compassionate action. It is our willingness to come to understand suffering. Practice cannot help but ripple out into the rest of our lives. As we learn to live more skillfully, it helps and inspires others to do the same. It becomes an expression of our deepest values. The Brahma-viharas all work together to balance each other. It is compassion's function to remember however great the joy and happiness may be, there are still those caught in suffering. It moves us again and again into action in the world. It prevents us from becoming complacent in the world, but continually motivating us to deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. 
Compassion also needs the balance of wisdom, or we lack the skillfulness to know when it is time to act and when this will only lead to greater suffering. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering, to move from this place of intention, not being fearful or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow, but a continual faith in the capacity of the heart to love. Originally, I was going to tell a Jataka tale at this point. Um, I always love the Jataka tales because they, they so embody these qualities of love, compassion, wisdom. And sometimes I notice when I hear them, I think of them as tall tales. For you, those of you who aren't familiar, the Jataka tales are tales of the Buddha's life before he was actually the Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva and perfecting these qualities. But what came to mind to me when I was thinking of that is that in all of our own lives that we have many probably little interactions with other beings where there is an expression of um, compassion and love. And I reflected on animals in my life, and at one point I was very close to animals, probably closer to animals than to people. And some of those were wild animals, and some of them were pets. At that time, I had a, a dog whose name was Kama, and she was a very great teacher to me. Um, I had her for seven years at a very difficult time in my life, and she became, she had quite a difficult life too at times too. She became a mother at a very young age, and <laughs> out of that she somehow developed these qualities of mothering that she carried for the rest of her life. At th she became spayed, and at times she would nurse other puppies, or kittens even even when it wasn't possible. <laughs> but she just had this deep caring for all living beings I was to come to find. One day I came across her and there was this um, kitten who was playing with a spider. And obviously the kitten was winning out. And she intervened. And she just very gently went up to the kitten and nudged it and pushed it away. And then the spider got away. <laughs> was free. Another time um, I was watching her. She was out in the front yard playing with two quite large dogs and a small puppy. And as they were playing, the plane was getting rougher and rougher, and it was the little puppy that was getting the brunt of it all. And I watched her. She just looked as if she noticed it, and she looked around, and then she saw this old bowl, and she went and she started kicking this bowl and kicking it really madly. And the other two larger dogs became really interested and they came over and started bashing it around too, and then the puppy was fine. <laughs> and then she just quietly backed out of that game. So I learned a lot about unconditional love for all beings from her. And I also was able to be witness to how she was able to turn these situations where there could be potentially harm, um, to turn them around with a very gentle and playful tactics that she didn't she was never heavy-handed in it
So mudita is the next of the Brahma-viharas. Um, it's often translated as sympathetic or appreciative joy. It is where we delight or find joy in the happiness of others. The root meaning is to be pleased or to have a sense of gladness. In metta practice, we come in contact with all beings connecting through our desire to have true happiness. In, in compassion practice, we expand this to be able to open to the suffering of others. And in mudita, or appreciative joy, we begin to connect with others through opening to their happiness. This Brahma-vihara is considered to be the most difficult one. Oftentimes, when we come in contact with another person's happiness, if we are not connected, we easily fall into states of jealousy, envy, judgment, comparison. The feeling or the thought possibly of, um, they're happy, when will I be happy? Or they don't deserve it, but I do. Or else someone gets what you want and the thought comes that you will never get it because they have it. We s can sometimes have this underlying fear that there is only a limited amount of happiness available. And it can also happen that when someone else's good qualities come to light, that we become more conscious of our own blemishes. And in comparison, we feel that we don't quite match up. It may have happened that as we've been sitting in this hall, maybe there was someone who was sitting with a slight smile on their face. And then as the days went by, they began to glow a bit. Do we delight in their happiness? Or do we start to think, what do they have that I don't? <laughs> or, or why can't I be like that? Or they're probably lost in sentimentality. <laughs> These painful states arise out of feelings of separation, the mind of comparison, or the I want mind. We are envious, jealous, hating to see the success or prosperity of the others and it makes us quite miserable. These qualities are considered to be the, the far enemy of mudita, or appreciative joy. Through the practice of mudita, we can cultivate the quality of rejoicing in another person's happiness. Just think how it would be if every time someone was happy, we could rejoice in this happiness, how multiplied our happiness becomes. When we begin delighting in others' happiness, we begin to see how contagious this really is, how happiness does not go away when we share it, but rather that it becomes more abundant. The heart becomes free. Through this practice, we can also learn to be happy for people, even when their happiness is not what we would want for ourselves. An example might be that um, we have a friend who wants to get married, settle down, build a house, and have a family. And this is actually the opportunity that they're faced with in life. And for someone like me, that might sound like bondage. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yet, if they 
<laughs> that was a revealing statement. <laughs> but yet, if that's what they truly want in their life, <laughs> we can be happy for them. <laughs> But this doesn't mean that if they were to decide to marry someone who was really abusive and to have to go into debt that they could never come out of to build this house and to have children that they could never afford to feed, that we would be happy for them. when we come in contact with the happiness that is authentic. <laughs> the practice also help, uh, helps us to open to our capacity to rejoice in happiness of beings that we may not uh, um, like. By opening to their happiness, it helps our hearts to soften towards them. Mudita is also said to help eliminate boredom. This happens because we begin to connect with the little things in life. We don't have to wait for the big happiness, but we can delight in any moment of good fortune or prosperity. Boredom happens when we stop seeing these little things. We lose interest in what's happening, and this can almost be a form of aversion. By reconnecting with the little things, it helps us to connect with our experience and the world around us. Even when there's people who have a lot of suffering in their lives, that in a moment, just one moment of happiness, it is as if the, the um, light shines through on a dark day. And we can rejoice and delight in that moment of light in their life. Mudita has an energizing quality to it. It is important to stay connected to the experience, or we can be swept away by it in exuberance, which is Mudita's near enemy. I came to understand a little bit about this exuberance. I was doing this practice at IMS where I have a lot of friends around, and as I walked through my day, I just kept um, wishing that their happiness and good fortune could be never-ending. And with each person that I saw, it was just so delightful and happy. And I was getting really feeling good, thinking, what a great practice this is. I love it. And then I found myself totally exhausted. <laughs> um, this exuberance is quite different than just the simple delight of the heart. It is mudita's or appreciative joy's function to remind us of joy when we are lost in sorrow. It helps keep compassion from being drowned or overwhelmed in pain, where compassion helps to keep mudita from degenerating into sentimentality or ignorant optimism. Compassion also helps mudita to be boundless. Oftentimes we may take our practice very seriously 
thinking that practices such as mudita are only superficial. But happiness is said to be the proximate cause of concentration. Through mudita, the mind becomes lighter, more buoyant. It gladdens the heart in a way that leads to greater serenity and tranquility. When we are calm and tranquil, it is easier to live from a place of wisdom and compassion. The fourth Brahma-vihara is upeka or equanimity. Upeka translated means balance. When we have a balance in the mind that does not fall into extremes, it often seems very subtle and yet it's also very profound that really none of the other Brahma-viharas can unfold without it. When we have equanimity, we can open equally to all experience. Where there is pleasant experiences, they can be just that, with no need to hang on to them. When things are unpleasant, there is no need to push them away. We can simply rest at ease in the changing conditions of life, in a state of non-reactivity. Equanimity's near enemy is indifference. The quality that true equanimity has that indifference doesn't is connection. With equanimity, we still stay connected with the experience, maybe fully experiencing pain, yet we are not reactive to the pain itself. It does not mean that we do not respond to the pain, but that the place of action comes from a place of balance. We also can let go of attachment to the outcome of our actions. When we have equanimity, we trust in the lawfulness of life. We can see this when we begin to notice <coughs> our underlying intentions and motivations, how our words and actions plant seeds and eventually bear fruit. When our intentions come from a place of love and care, they bear fruits of happiness. When their intentions are filled with anger and aversion, they bear fruits of pain and suffering. <coughs> In this way, we see that people are responsible for their own happiness. If we live in a way that perpetuates peace and harmony, we will feel more peaceful and harmonious. If we live in a way that creates anger, hatred, and separation, we will suffer. The phrase classically taught for equanimity <coughs> practices, all beings are heir to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends <coughs> upon their actions and not upon my wishes. I remember back to when I first heard this. I had been sitting um, doing Brahma-vihara practice for seven weeks, wishing well to all beings. And then in hearing this, I kind of was dumbstruck. What have I been doing for seven weeks? They're responsible for their own happiness. <laughs> what I saw from that, how was attachment had crept into my practice. <coughs> that in some way I was starting to feel responsible for other people's happiness. And then when I began using this phrase, I felt such a sense of relief. And this didn't mean <coughs> that I still didn't wish them well but only that I was not responsible for their well-being. It is equanimity's function to keep love and compassion from moving into uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity gives compassion 
the strength to move into action without attachment to the results. It helps strengthen the quality of fearlessness, bringing calmness and patience to the situation. Equanimity helps the other Brahma-viharas to move into boundlessness without dis distinction or exclusion. This is only touching upon equanimity, and I'm going to leave it to Sharon to continue this tomorrow night. <laughs> <coughs> I wanted to share with you um, an experience that I had yesterday. Through my whole life, I've had this idea that I couldn't sing. And yesterday, from Sita, I had a chanting lesson. And in less than 45 minutes, she helped me to unlock doors that have been locked. She gave me very simple feedback in what I was doing that was producing a tension and an uncertainty in my voice. She helped me to read into, to reach notes that when she first did them, I just laughed. I thought, no, this isn't possible for me. And I really saw how this experience was parallel to what our practice is. In our practice, it's not that we don't have metta, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. But we have just become identified with what keeps us from feeling this. It wasn't like yesterday I suddenly had, had a voice that I didn't have before, but through just becoming aware of where the places of holding were and coming to understand them, they very naturally released. <coughs> In our metta practice, as we hit what we have used, viewed as obstacles, they just begin to dissolve just by becoming known. So it is not that we are generating metta, but learning to incline the mind towards what is already there, learning to come to rest in our true home. Um, this is a quote from Kosho Ichiyama Roshi. The true self includes the entire world in which it lives. Therefore, there is nothing that is not a part of it. Everything encountered is life. To devote ourselves to everything we encounter and throw our life force into doing just that is quite different from simply exhausting our energies playing with toys. Here is our passion for life as joyful mind manifests and the significance of being alive. So, let's sit for a moment.
may our practice be dedicated to the alleviation of suffering of all beings. So this evening again we'll go through the first round, call <coughs> and response. And I'd just like to point out to you that when there's a C in a word, it's a, it's a soft C, as in acharyanam. And when there's a V in a word, it's pronounced like a W, like dewa or awera. So we'll do it call and response the first round and then we'll do it all together. Sabe puto, sabe pugala, 
By this practice, in accord with the two Dharma, I honor the Dharma. By this practice, in accord with the two Dharma, I honor the Sangha. By this practice, in accord with the two Dharma, I honor my mother and my father. By this practice, in accord with the two Dharma, I honor my teachers. May all beings, all living things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities, all females, all males, all noble ones, all who are not noble, all deities, all humans, all those in unhappy states, may they be free from enmity. May they be free from mental suffering. May they be free from physical suffering and take of themselves happily. May they be free from suffering. May they enjoy safety and abundance. May they have their karma as their true property. May all beings be happy. This is well spoken. sure you have the words. And I just wanted to, to encourage you this evening as you chant the metta chant just to rest gently in your bellies. Just allow the chant to 
sink down into the belly. Sabe, Manu, sir. 
By this practice, in accord with the two Dharma, I honor the Buddha. By this practice, in accord with the true Dharma, I honor the Dharma. By this practice, in accord with the true Dharma, I honor the Sangha. By this practice, in accord with the true Dharma, I honor my mother and my father. By this practice, in accord with the true Dharma, I honor my teachers. May all beings, all living things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities, all females, all males, all noble ones, all who are not noble, all deities, all humans, all those in unhappy states, may they be free from enmity, May they be free from mental suffering. May they be free from physical suffering and take of themselves happily. May they be free from suffering. May they enjoy safety and abundance. May they have their karma as their true property. May all beings be happy. This is well spoken. <coughs> Do it together twice through. I feel feels like you have it at this point. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so again, just allow your attention just to gently touch your belly down into the belly so that the chant really has a lot of space to be made known. Imaya Damanu Damapati Patiya Bodam Puchemi Imaya Damanu Damapati Patiya Damam Puchemi Imaya Damanu Damapati Patiya Sangam Puchemi Imaya Damanu 
Satya Mata Pitunam Pochemi Imaya Dhamanu Dhamapati Patiya Acharyanam Pochemi Sabe Sata Sabe Sabe Buddha, Sabe Pugala, Sabe Atabawa Pariyapanna, Sabe Itiyo, Sabe Parisa, Sabe Arya, Sabe Anarya, Sabe Dewa, Sabe Manusa, Sabe Winnipatika, Awera Hantu, Abia Pacha Hantu, Aniga Hantu, Sukiatanam Pariharantu. Dukkha mochantu yata lada sampatito mawiga chantu kamasaka sabe sata sukihantu imaya damanu Dhamma Pati Pati Yo Bodham Poche Mi Imaya Dhammanu Dhamma Pati Pati Yo Dhamma Poche Mi Imaya Dhammanu Dhamma Pati Pati Yam Sangam Poche Mi Imaya Dhammanu Dhamma Pati Pati Yam Mata Pitunam Poche Mi Imaya Dhammanu Dhamma Pati Pati Yo Acharyanam Poche Mi Sabe Sata Sabe Pana Sabe Bhuta Sabe Pugala Sabe Atabawa Paya Sabha Itiyo Sabha Parisa Sabha Arya Sabha Anarya Sabha Dewa Sabha Manusa Sabha 
attention just to rest gently down in the belly to really feel that open soft space so that the chant has really allowed a lot of room to be made known 